Hi everyone, and welcome to episode 30 of the ZA DevTed podcast. This is our February Sickfold, in which we'll just have some random banter about stuff that's interested us that we've been keeping note of in the last few weeks. So join joining me tonight is just Kevin, and we're just going to explore and hope you enjoy, and we're looking forward to your feedback on other stuff to cover in future Sickfolds. How's it going, Kevy? Hey, yeah, things are good. Thanks. How are you doing, Kenny? Good things, good things. Can't complain. Yeah, it's a hot Monday night. Let's go look at some interesting topics here. Oh, blazingly hot. Eh? It feels like we're recording in the middle of the day. Oh, heat waves, Joe Boog. No, just the heat in the last few months and the the record heats we've been seeing, plus the African droughts. It hasn't yeah. been great. Yeah, we can just hope it starts cooling down and we get more rain. There's a lot of places that need water desperately. Yeah, when we were flying down to Ruby Fusa and flying back, I don't know if you had a chance to look out the window at all, but my word. It was very, very brown everywhere. Yeah. No, it, it just highlighted how dry things actually are for me. It's, uh, I don't think we realize it up here in the high field because we've at least been getting some rain here. And Joburg water does a good thing of keeping the pipes full. Yeah. No, that's been it's been pretty good up here at least, but man. Just the just the sights going down there of just how brown dry things are, it was quite a wake up call. And even Cape Town itself. So yeah, speaking yeah. of speaking of Cape Town and Fusa, what did you think? I was now what, two weeks ago, three weeks ago? Oh time flies, eh? She's uh yeah, I think that at time of recording it's now just over two weeks ago. Be close to three when the episode goes live. Yeah, so I enjoyed that. Uh, what a venue. I thoroughly enjoyed just being there at the President Hotel. Thought that worked out really well this year. It was a nice place and it was in such a good location. Yeah, and having the one conference there, it's a one time a year that I really enjoy. You know, it's always one of the highlights of my year, just going down to Ruby Fusa, seeing friends, old friends, new friends. Seeing some guys coming in from overseas, uh, Lance was here. Always enjoy having him around. Yeah, how did you find it? It was fantastic. I love it. It's like the best family reunion every year. Always look forward to it. Yeah, that's such a good way of putting it. Family reunion. Yes, and the international visitors. It was nice seeing meeting uh, like in new people. I mean, Lance is here every year. It's practically part of the furniture. <laughs> He helps yeah, organize um, the thing. I mean, he was MC this year, right? He He's not just part of the furniture anymore. He's, I think he's part of the building now. Yes. <laughs> Set in stone. And then, yeah, meeting Asaf, who came all the way from Israel and, like, spent his birthday with us. Julian coming all the way from Bath. That was pretty cool. Sarah May uh, from the States. Yeah, I had a great time chatting to Sarah May uh actually got to pick her brain over some lunch uh, in well, a few days before the conference as well and just get into some of the details of the things that she was going to speak about in the keynote. Um, it was actually really nice. Very jealous, I must say. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the talk was fantastic. Yeah, so just for those who may not have been there, so there were... So Sarah May gave the keynote at Ruby Fusa, and it was primarily around three metaphors of teams, or 
in in software development practices those being the factory the workshop and she introduced what's probably a new uh, way of thinking about it as the theatrical stage yeah i love that model so much the stage just makes so much sense yeah and i love just the way that you think about it is when you're working on software it's it is a performance and the only way you know whether you're a success or not is well do the people come back and it also shows to you how if you take like a product owner they what they want or the stakeholders it's basically like a script and then you bring in the software team and they like the actors and they have to bring their own flavor to this production they'll take time spend time with the script come back give feedback and if it influence or it should influence how things get built and they'll you can build on this idea of the read-throughs of it so that everybody makes sure that the language is the same and that they understand what this play is supposed to be about and then how you do the rehearsals of the different parts uh, you know, like going through staging and QA and testing and everybody doing their role. And now you finally go live with your performance. You launch, you know, you deploy to production. And then how the feedback from the audience, like it's worked back. And every actor involved, so every developer needs to take that feedback and then build, you use that to build and refine and then take it as the way they would tour. Now, I absolutely love that. I just, and it also showed, how software is a creative process or, or should be thought of as a creative process. And I think the other thing it highlighted so much was how you can't just change people on the team. Yeah. And that uh, just, it's kind of like what, what Donnie and Kevin said last week, like teams are immutable. Like I was the, just going to say that. <laughs> it's so sensitive to change. And when you think of it as a, th- a stage production, it just makes so much sense. And you go like, okay, well, we can't just double the amount of actors and expect to have the same play like the smallest change has huge repercussions so i absolutely love that model yeah i think a lot of what uh what she spoke about ties into what donnie and kevin were talking about last week but what stands out is just how much of a people uh people problem software is it's not a technical problem it's a people problem when you're dealing with uh with software developments and things in general um and I think the just the model of thinking of it in terms of the stage and the performance, it, you can't just change people out and expect the same performance. It, all the way back, all the way from the point of the read-throughs and things that you were talking about, and I know she touches on that in the keynote, so I really can't wait for that video to be out. Uh, Stephen McDonald. Um, the <laughs> Shame, the poor guy. He's been getting so much flag about it. Yeah, he Thanks has for being it, Stephen. We love you. Thank you, Stephen. Please. <laughs> Please know we love you. Um, but yes, the, all the way from the point of read-throughs and how every person, every actor would bring their own personality to a character. Likewise, every developer or every person on a team, not necessarily only developers, it could be product owners, marketing people, uh, wherever you may fit into the, the overall team structure, you're always going to end up with a different performance every time you put a different person into a role because a certain role will influence other people's roles who or other people who are interacting with you and you can't you can't think of it in terms of factory where you just go and replace one cog with another cog that is the same spec or a similarly similarly cv'd person it just doesn't work that way 
No, it was very powerful stuff. Yeah, yeah that, that on its own, I think, was worth the cost of the conference. <laughs> yep. Yeah, and then, I mean, oh, there were so many other good talks. I'm just paging through my notes here, and it's, I almost feel like I don't want to call anybody else out, and I just want to say thank you to everybody. Like, the talks were absolutely amazing. Every single person that did the effort to spend all those hours prepping and, and doing that for us to learn. Yeah, it was a heck of a lot of fun. Um, I, I want to bring up one, one talk specifically, and not my own, but the uh, Julian's fl flying drones around in the conference hall. That was just awesome. Okay, that was. And controlling them with MIDI controllers and music. Yeah, so if you want to, if you weren't at the conference and you want to get on the action, there is a video on the ZA Dev Chat uh, YouTube. So please go take a look at that if you're curious about what this is about. But uh, we literally had a drone controlled by Ruby code uh, taking off and landing and doing dance moves to music uh, in the middle of Julian's talk. It was really cool. <laughs> Yeah, no, that was a lot of fun. Definitely a lot of fun. But yeah, thanks to everybody that the effort and the organizers for pulling off something amazing. Yeah, that that's actually something to mention is I mean Mark Heiliger's uh I mean he started the conference off it's now six years that Fuso's been running, I think. Give or take. Uh, I'm I'm gonna go with six. And at this point now we've got a primarily volunteer-run conference. So, yes, it's completely volunteer-run. Yeah, so, yeah, thanks everyone who was involved in organizing that, because it, it's truly something special. Anyway, uh, let's not go on too much about the Ruby, uh, the Ruby conference for the sake of everyone else around it, because we've got something else that's coming up fairly soon uh, that we're, well, you, me, Len, we're all going to be at. That's the DevConf coming up now on 8th of March. Yes, I'm looking forward to that. So if anybody hasn't listened to episode 23, we talked to uh, Robert McLean about DevCon. That's going to be, I'm looking forward to it. I must admit, I hate the fact that it's five tracks and we have to choose talks, but they it's a big undertaking that they're doing and they want to cover a lot of ground. So I guess it's the only way they can do it. A five-day conference won't fly. Yeah, um, if anyone's got a way of cloning myself into five so that I can be at all the talks, please let me know. Yep. That's always how I feel when I get to these multi-track conferences, but it, the talks look really good. Apparently they had a massive amount of talk submissions, um, far more than they were expecting, well over a hundred or something. So it was, it, it's really interesting just looking at the talks that, ha that have been accepted and are on the board. I'm really looking forward to a few of them. Me too, and it's quite a nice, like it covers everything from Java to iOS to JavaScript to automation, SQLs, NoSQLs, all kinds of soft skills. It's really going to be good. Yeah, I see. I mean, there's some JavaScript stuff in there that I'm really interested in seeing. Um, I know Garen was on the show a little while ago talking about CouchDB, and he's going to be uh, showing how to use CouchDB and PouchDB together. Uh, yeah, there are some great talks that are that are listed in here as well. So I, I don't want to go into too many of them right now. Yeah, it's just good luck to anybody who's got to choose. <laughs> yeah, jeez. To my own detriment, Martin Cronier is giving a talk in the 
afternoon. He's the last person on the teams and, and people's track. Uh, I'm the last person in DevOps and automation uh, at the same time. <laughs> and we were just chatting today briefly about his talk. And, and if what the little bit we mentioned about Sarah May interests you, that style of thinking, looking for models and metaphors for teams and how they work, I think his stuff is going to be amazing. But I won't spoil it. Let him uh, blow your minds. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're in that last slot. He's in that last slot. Kenny, I think it was, was it JSNSA a couple of years ago that you and I were both in the same, same slot in a multi-track conference? I, just, I think so, yeah. Yeah, there are all these stories. I don't know. I've kind of torn between the multi-track and single-track models. Multi-track gives you such a variety of things and the single-track, sometimes I guess you do get to the talks that don't interest you as well. And being able to switch around does help, but... Yeah, pros and cons to both. It does, and I don't think anybody will ever really be happy. <laughs> and I don't mean that in a, in a bad way. It's just the conference organizers do such a good job of getting great people to submit that it's just impossible to please everybody. The one thing that I do always find with multi-track conferences is that um, just getting the people to move out of the room between sessions stimulates a whole lot of hallway conversation that doesn't happen at single track conversations as much. And I thoroughly enjoy that. I remember more JSNSA was always a, a well, has been a two track conference for a few years and well, barring last year that is, but I'd always end up in great conversations with speakers or just other people, uh, delegates in between, just moving between the rooms and I don't know. I'm, I'm interested to see what happens with that at DevConf. Definitely, and with such a variety of people, that it's it's going to be good. <laughs> right. So, yeah, let, climbing off the conference track, uh, let's have a look at some of our tech stuff that we got in our list. And you mentioned Go 1.6. What's so exciting about that? Yeah. So Go 1.6 is out uh, as of a few days ago last week actually um, so it's primarily an incremental release it's not a big bang release like go 1.5 was uh, but there are quite a lot of improvements to core library and to um, a parity between the CGO and GCC go to uh, tooling so if you're doing go please make sure you're running on go 1.6 so the things that really interested me in that I actually wrote a blog about this uh, was the HTTP uh, two is on by default? I think you can you could call it that. If you're communicating over HTTPS uh, uh, using the core library HTTP uh, stack, um, and HTTP two is appropriate, it will just automatically use HTTP two, which is pretty cool. Um, there's no exposed API that's specific to HTTP two. Just as there's no specific HTTP one point one API. So that should just work. That, so that's pretty cool. Um, and the other end of that is, uh, the other end of Go 1.6 at least, is there's a, they've restructured the sorting algorithm in the sort package. And that now does on a standard, uh, across their standard tests, roughly 10% fewer calls to your lesson swap functions. So that, and therefore has the related speed improvements as well. So sorting is a bit faster. Um, that the, What they do warn though is that if you are relying on the sort order, 
then uh, from the original sorts algorithm that could break on uh, with this new algorithm. If you need stable sorting, use the sort.stable function. Don't use the normal sort function. That's interesting. Yeah, so... And, hmm? and it's perfectly compatible with Go 1.5 in the tradition of, of backwards compatibility. Yeah. You can just <coughs> upgrade Go and Go. Yeah, so it maintains Go compatibility, well, Go 1.x compatibility. Uh, there should be no breaking changes. That is awesome. Yeah, I love That's that. such a nice little language. Yeah, I love the simplicity of Go. Uh, and and the Goisms, uh, like the fortune of uh, chatting with Len about a week ago, and he was just taking me through some just lower level, well, not lower level stuff, uh, like good use of Go channels, like really leaning on them and the amazing things you can can do with it. And it just goes to, so like it's not just the, types in the big compiler, you know, the anal compiler and static compilation and being able to just throw the binary everywhere. Even just like these little things that you can build on to make solutions that would have otherwise been a nightmare. So easy and so flexible. And this example we were chatting through and I saw it on the go by example.com uh, as well. They've got it, this idea of having a rate limiter. So if you need to call some kind of API at a, and you are limited to a certain amount of calls per second or per minute, you can just have a channel with a go routine writing to a channel, doesn't matter what the value is, at set intervals. And then whenever you need to make a call to that API, you simply first pluck a value off that channel where your governor, your throttle is writing to. And if it's waiting for the next interval, like you've exhausted your number of available requests it'll block until it's got a value again otherwise it will just get a value instantly and go on and i was just like i'll link to the example but it's just amazing and you go like wow this is these guys really thought things through to allow such simple patterns to emerge to an otherwise tricky problem and there's just so much more to it yeah the one thing that i really like with go around just around the channels discussion is how They've managed to have multi, well, multi-threading with Go routines without actually exposing any kind of threading API. Um, and then instead of sharing memory to communicate between these threads, you, communi you communicate between these threads by using these channels. Uh, but the patterns, like you showed me that thing a while ago with um, using select, just with advanced pat patterns of, of using channels and asynchrony in Go. And I think that just goes with the mantra and the philosophy of the Go languages that the language should be so small that you can keep the entire spec in memory, in human memory, that is, uh, at any time. Yeah, that's a great thing that they gunned for. And it only makes sense after a while. Actually, to me, it made the most sense when I learned Go and then I didn't touch it for more than a year. And then I started showing a colleague Go and we wrote a web server without me opening the docs once. Like it was just a simple HTTP handler on a route. But you can go like, that is it. A year's passed that I haven't written anything in it. And I was able to just dump it out and, and get the code running and work around the compiler areas one by one. It's fantastic. Yeah, there's definitely something to be said about that in that it went, when when the code compiles, generally you know that it's actually going to work the way that you expect it to. It doesn't have some of these uh, abstractions that you may get in 
high level languages like Ruby, uh, such as you don't have generic maps between arrays and things, but it has some other interesting side effects in that I find because I can't just write a call to dot map on an array, I end up writing a function that does that transformation. And by writing a function, I then give it a name. And that then I've got a name in my general domain for that transformation that I wouldn't have otherwise had if I had just called into a generic map. Yeah, very true. Very true. So it's, it's simple. It gives you very few kind of low-level building blocks. Um, but by you, by careful choice of what those are, it, it leads to some really nice code, I found. Mm. And uh, speaking of building blocks, crates.io, Rust 1.6. Tell us what, what happened there. Yeah, so Rust is my other um, interest at the moment, my other love. Um, when I'm cheating on Ruby and Go, I'm doing Rust. So crates.io in the latest release of Rust, that was now at the end of January, uh, disallows wildcard versions on crates. So you can't just rely on the regex crate uh, with the wildcard version. You need to give it a specific version or at least a semantically versioned range at least. Now, Rust works on a six-week uh, release cycle and they are semantically versioned. So if you are interested in Semver, just go take a look at I think it's semver.org. Awesome. Yes. Uh, that, that gives a good explanation of what semantic versioning is all about. But what I, I really liked just seeing that they're making a, a concerted effort to bring in semantic versioning into the ecosystem. It, it takes a very different approach from the Go ecosystem that we were just talking about. So when you look at Go 1.6, you see a whole lot of updates and modifications and tweaks to the standard library where a lot of the things that you'll find in Go standard library are you'll find in Rust, you would have to bring in an external crate to do the same kind of uh, functionality. One thing I learned this morning about Semver that I didn't know before is the, the Semver spec basically leaves it up to the project to define what compatibility means. So for different languages or different styles of projects, that definition of compatibility and backwards compatibility is up to the like implementer of the same verb. So for Rust, it could be way different than for a JavaScript or Ruby project that tries to follow same verb. And they technically the way Rust works, it's more susceptible to breaking changes the whole time. So they needed to take like a stance on what same verb means for the Rust project when they hit 1.0 and started down this six week release cycle. That was interesting. I did on a, another show with Steve Klapnik where he was unpacking it a bit. But I wanted to ask <clears throat> that that little aside. Mm. So just for people that might not be familiar with crates, including me, how do you specify those versions? Is it similar? We would you have like a crate file or like a .json file, like a package.json or a gem file or a Maven XML, like something along those lines? Yeah, it's quite similar. Um, so when you're working with Rust, you're working with a tool called Cargo. Uh, Yehuda Katz built that, uh, who you'll know Yehuda Katz in, in the in similar contexts was key in the Bundler project on Ruby. Uh, but crates are kind of the unit of distribution of code when you're working with Rust. 
So similar to Ruby Gems or Go packages, the crates specifically when you want to define the version, uh, your user file called cargo.toml. So that's uh, I can't remember what that stands for. It's, uh, it's about Tom's, Tom's, yeah, Tom's language Tom's. or Tom's markup language. Yes. Um, Tom Tom Preston Warner of GitHub fame put that together. It looks a lot like a uh, .ini file if you've done any stuff uh, any work on Windows or with PHP.ini. I'll just throw that one in there. Six. <laughs> hey. But quick aside, he yeah. didn't write the passes, eh? He just wrote the spec, and then he left it. And then people went and wrote, like, he just wrote the readme. He's like, this is what I want. And then oh, the internet provided. it. Yes, yeah, I didn't write the code at all. Oh, okay, I hadn't come across that. I got back to our TOML file for cargo. Yeah, so we've got a cargo.toml. That, uh, and in there you'll declare your dependencies under the dependencies header. And I could bring in, say, time, and I can, the time packet or time crate. Uh, and in there I will specify I want version 0.1 of the time package. Now, if I'm publishing a crate to crates.io, I have to speci- specify a specific version of the time crate. I can't just use a wildcard asterisk as my version now. Okay, that's really, really cool. So, I did that. Yeah, so crates, if you're pulling crates from crates.io, at least at some point in the future, most crates should uh, have semantically versioned dependencies, which is which sounds quite appealing. No, definitely, I agree with that as a discipline. I want to on the on the same lines. I want to check out Elm. It's this functional JavaScript T language, what compiles down to JavaScript. And uh, one of the reasons is they have because of the, the static compiler and the way they work. They can simply, when you publish a package as a, as a library author or a package author, the build tools can detect if you made a breaking change in your API and it will not allow you to release. You've got to bump your major, major version. If so, if the types or the method signatures changed. And I just thought that that's such a cool tip to kind of get the semantic versioning like in place. It's nuts. So we have to check that out for a future episode. Yeah, can you, or have you looked at Elm much? Would you be able to talk about that a bit? Not at all. I've just heard of it on nearly every podcast that I listen to. So it's made me very curious to check it out. But let me first make my way through the Elixir book, and then I'll pick up <laughs> the second functional language. Yeah, so just looking at the Elmlang website, it's uh, tagline here, the best of functional programming in your browser. Writing great code should be easy. Now it is. That's was very much inspired by Haskell, but it's not trying to be a port. And it very much, my understanding is it also embraces the fact that it's actually in a browser. So it's got a lot of uh, mechanics in place for you to uh, like have trigger side effects in your JavaScript or handle the side effects from outside coming in with, I think it's called ports and signals is the way to talk out. And uh, they've got great support for They've got a great Canvas library, so people are using it to build uh, Canvas games with and a ton of other good stuff. But that's just been a very healthy, positive energy, at least from everybody I've heard speak about it. So I don't know, maybe we've got a listener who's worked with Elm. Like, reach out to us. Let's chat about it a bit. I would guess that this does some kind of transpilation in terms of JavaScript and then gets compiled back down to JavaScript that gets run in the browser. 
So, so speaking of that, um, we were having a discussion a little well today, actually, I think about uh, CoffeeScript and ES 2015 standards um, and how CoffeeScript was a kind of a needed step in the right direction. And it's now, but now the, the tooling is all around ES 2015, right? Yes. Yeah, I definitely think CoffeeScript was a needed crutch. Um, I dislike it now. I wouldn't start any project with it at all. But I'm so grateful for it and how it just made me a better JavaScript developer, spending the time debugging the the generated JavaScript. Not that it was ever a pain, even before source maps, but like getting a good grip on how the scoping works in JavaScript, seeing how your fat arrows and thin arrows like transform the this equals that or that equals this, making sense of that, all those bindings. No, I really like it. And the primitive uh, object model it gave us, or, you know, this prototypical inheritance, like that was really, really nice. But I definitely think like not to be used anymore and should be gracefully converted if projects can, if your toolchain allows it. Yeah, it definitely enabled a lot of um, classical object-oriented developers to write some decent JavaScript at least. And I think in general it wrote, or it would compile to better JavaScript than I would have written, at least in ES5. Oh, definitely. Like, I mean, it would almost always pass linting. It would always use triple equals, like all the best stuff. Mm. Yeah, it's like that whole thing of the JavaScript, the good, the good parts next to the JavaScript book. It's, uh, I don't know if you've ever looked at that or seen that meme of the two books next to each other. Yeah, the one's paper thin. <laughs> it's like one fifth of the uh, thickness of the other. But anyway... Uh, yeah, so no, Jeremy Ashkenaz did us a favor, and I think it, it came at the right time. Yes. Uh, but do I think to still stick to it now with, is like not admitting that JavaScript as a language is moving forward and that the tools are moving forward as well. Yeah, I certainly think that CoffeeScript has become a silo. Uh, if you're working with that now, and I mean, I'm still working on CoffeeScript code bases, uh, and not having access to all of the really nice tooling that's available for ES 2015 code now is, it's sad. It is, it is. Yeah, because we've got great tooling like turn.js that gives you um, code completion and code insight. And that just plugs into most editors. You don't have access to that if you work in CoffeeScript now. Um, it, it's become a silo, almost, uh, almost like vendor lock-in in many ways. Oh, it's sad how it went that way. We didn't see it coming. Yeah, but again, thanks, Jeremy. Uh, you did us a huge favor in just getting getting us in the right direction because so many of the great features from CoffeeScript are now in ES 2015. Yes, it had a huge influence on the spec. So it definitely yeah, did it. functions, but... things like that. And uh, I just want to pull us a bit back to the Rust stuff. I think we missed something. Is that Intermezos... Uh, that I oh, yes. shared with you pretty cool. Uh, I think it's very interesting. And I know you've got a fondness for, for trying to go down the stack and understand the lower levels. So this is an interesting project from Steve Klapnik. And the way he puts it is if you are a JavaScript developer and you want to learn how to write an OS, this should be the way that you learned, or this should be the avenue that you follow. So it's an operating system that he's busy writing out in rust but it's not meant to be like any scale of production it's just so that you can learn 
how OS has actually worked from the ground up. And he reckons that the reason operating system classes are so hard for students and, and so feared is actually that the teachers are pretty crap and don't care. Or this is like, have this elitist thing, like it should be difficult. Like it's just this thing that not everybody should be able to do. And therefore, like this whole stigma just clouds the thing where he believes there's a lot of value in bringing this to people. And he says it's based on his own experience as well. He never, no, he took fewer operating system classes than some of his friends in varsity. And this is his way of like attaining that knowledge that he felt he missed out at while he was studying. So it looks like an interesting project. I haven't checked it out too much, but I just think if, if people are curious about building OSs and handling interrupts and scheduling tasks and all this jazz, that's definitely a, a good thing to go check out. So it's just, we'll have a link in the show note for Intermezos. Yeah, so you mentioned something about there being a book along with that. It's not just the operating system that he's building, but there's something. There's a book that goes along with it? Yes, he's writing a book in parallel that explains to you exactly how it works from the bootloader to the the whole lot he did say that the book is a bit behind on the code but i think he's planning on catching it up i mean this guy's become a documentation wizard uh this last three years that he's been busy with rust yeah if his work on the rust docs uh is anything to go by then this is going to be something pretty good to read <laughs> yes definitely yeah. so i don't know how much of this book have you have you seen does it have um is it just an explanation of how the code works or are there exercises of then taking that code and taking things forward or starting at a point and then learning about how interrupts are scheduled on uh, in Intermezos or something like that? So I had a quick skim through the book. I don't think it's that far just yet, but it does show you how to do the smallest possible kernel and how you can run that code and how it works with the CPU and mapping and all kinds of different things. He's got a few placeholder chapters for getting into paging and uh, setting up a GDD, GDT, running main functions, building like this stuff coming for building a VGA driver and handling keyboard input. So that's all coming. And then I don't know if on the GitHub repo he actually maybe has more stuff in in the code. Let's see, when last did he... He committed a month ago, so he's still pretty busy. And he's got an IRC channel where people can chat. And I mean, he's generally very accessible. It's really easy to get hold of him online. I don't know if he ever sleeps. <laughs> maybe he's figured out how to clone himself, multi-track conference style. Maybe. But I think that, that's interesting. And I mean, you were almost playing with the x86 interpreter in JavaScript. Uh, no, 6502 interpreter. Oh, so, some interpreter. Yeah, so you could, uh, it, it was pretty cool. You could, you had the 6502 chip uh, drawn up using SVG in the browser and you could then execute instructions against it and it would actually show you the circuit diagrams of uh, what uh, live as, as it was executing your code of what was switching on, where things were going, things like that. So leading into that, um, I mean, that, that, I don't think anyone's going to be running into Mesos on a 1.78 megahertz 6502 chip. But uh, is this x86 or is it ARM or can it compile down to anything? I think it, I don't know. 
it might be x86 that guess it's the lowest barrier to entry i didn't specifically see it in the in the docs okay yeah, i see it's got links to development environments for linux os x windows well, then again i guess that doesn't really answer the question either because you can run well i guess os x is x86 so it probably has an x86 backing to it yep it's just not covered but anyways i think it's if it's something that interests you and and it uh, like os is building an os fault out of your reach this might just be a good gateway drug yeah because when i was starting to get into operating systems the place len actually pointed me to was um a implementation of unix system 6 written in c ported for x86 uh, it's available on github and i can put the link in the show notes uh, and, and it was really interesting to read through because it has all the bootloader logic assembler code for bootloaders that then switches your 386, an i386 CPU into, uh, into calling the C functions that then start the operating system. Uh, so Intermezzo sounds like probably a better way of learning this, but uh, there are a few other sources available. And that the Unix System 6 clone that I'm talking about there was... Uh, uh, it was part of a set of MIT lectures, and I think there are videos of that on YouTube. Uh, the complete set wasn't up, but someone sat there in their lectures with a video camera and just recorded it and uploaded the videos. That's pretty cool. Okay, then, I would say, like, speaking of operating systems and absolute guts of the system, there's this scary glibc DNS vulnerability that was announced um, on Friday, I think, on the 18th. And this thing sounds super scary. I don't have the full uh, like explanation of it. And I've only been reading a few quick posts about it. But if anybody wants to check it out in details, there's a CVE assigned to it. And it's CVE 2015-7574. Uh, and basically, the idea behind it is that in some a false way, it might be possible for an attacker to return um, a 2048 byte DNS reply with like actual malware code in it that could cause a buffer overflow uh, or something similar inside GLPC and might possibly lead to remote code execution via DNS responses. So if somebody could poison a DNS cache and have it successfully reply these uh, broken packets back to clients you could really knock a lot of machines off uh but it, it looks scary so the guys have been doing some tests against it um and they kind of warned that they're not really sure how this could be used um you know in the public space but that it's very much possible on a network where you control everything to um, attack machines with it so i've got a link in the uh, for the show notes and it's called a skeleton key of unknown strength and it's fascinating. This guy unpacks this vulnerability. And he basically says it makes Heartbleed and Shellshock and all the previous ones of yesteryear like, look like nothing. Um, so this is a really, really good one. Um, to understand, it's a really scary one um, as well. And I'm just kind of bringing it up saying people should uh, really look at getting the latest security patches on their machines ASAP. And unfortunately, this is one of those that requires a reboot. So some uptime counters will be reset if people take 
pride in that. Um, I think it's way more important to get your machines updated. So, I mean, this is glibc. Um, and wouldn't you also need to recompile parts of your your system that are compiled against or linked against glibc? Not if it's just linked stat, uh, uh, if it's linked dynamically, uh, they'll just get the updated one. But that's why the like re you need to reboot because I mean glibc is almost every application in Linux is linked against it. Yeah, it, all the way down to your kernel, you've got you know, perhaps not at the kernel level, but you've got stuff all the way down. That's going to be calling into G glibc is the GNU C library, right? Yes, yes. And the idea is that uh, everybody links against it to keep the binary smaller. So everything links up to it. Everything it does a DNS query is now vulnerable. And uh, in this blog post, the guy does a quick few checks. He set up a DNS server that does reply with these faulty responses. And then he does a check uh, test with Node and Python and Java, even Haskell. And basically, all of them die with memory corruption errors. Sure. Like at least you can't get code to execute. And um, but these are supposed to be memory safe operations. And even like Haskell with its strict typing, like it's linked against something that you would expect to be memory safe, so they can just treat it, but it just blows up completely. Um, so it's 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 dangerous. I mean. You do a call command or some API call out, you're just talking to Twitter to scrape your next feeds or you're doing an RSS pool and somewhere in there uh, comes the domain. You know, you like you let people add content and you want to reach out to go grab snippets of text off the page or whatever. And any, any, any DNS response could potentially, under the right circumstances, compromise your system. And I mean, that's just like the inverse. This is, there's nothing you can do to control this. You can't use a VPN connection, like you can't do HTTPS because all of these need a DNS query first. So, but luckily so far, it's proven that these poisoned responses can't really get through uh, the caching DNS systems, um, mm -hmm. but it doesn't mean attackers are not going to work on crafting the perfect response that can make it through a caching DNS. And if they can get a caching DNS server poisoned, I mean, that's chaos. That's like an whole ISP or several ISP, you know, like their whole networks suddenly getting affected with this. So we'll have to wait and see where this goes. But for now, it's very, very important to, to get your systems updated. Then what about someone using their laptop at a coffee shop and someone on that network manages to um, change the hijack the DHCP and you uh, and and point you to a poison DNS server is that possible theoretically I think that coffee shop examples should be very easy to do uh, if you know you can compromise a microtic um, I'm not saying quite easily but you know people put they put down a microtic that's not sufficiently hardened and you could be in there one two three mm. I don't know how the relaying would work you might just drop a firewall rule to point all DNS queries to your uh, poison server. I don't know how this affects Windows, and I don't know. I don't think it affects OSX. We'll need to check. But I mean, we haven't seen a security update out for OSX yet. The other question then is, what about mobile devices? Because your Android devices are all basically running Linux kernels. You've, I'm sure glibc is in there. You've, your iPhones should have that in there somewhere as well. Well, the iPhone would. I'm being naive, I guess, in saying it, but at least it should be. Um, it's also BSD, just like OSX. And so that means glibc is not 
really in there. I'm oh, just no, scanning. I'm, I'm speculating with that. Me too. But it's it's a very very good point that you bring up. I don't think they are affected. But if they are, we, we should just check into that and make sure that we're up to date on mobile OSs as well. Now, looking at the CVE, it's been kind of confirmed by F5 and Red Hat and um, who else was here? Google's security, uh, they confirmed it. Sourceware confirmed it. So it just looks like Linux, folks. I should have. Yeah, I didn't even think about what you brought up. I should have read that up a bit earlier. Because when you're working with Android, you can, uh, I think they call it the NDK, uh, Native Development Kit, or something like that. Uh, I'm not an Android dev, so please don't kill me if I've made some mistake there. Uh, but you should be able to link against the standard C library when you're working on Android. So I can. I would guess that it should be uh, it would be vulnerable to this, but I, I don't know. Speculation worth checking out separately. Exercise for the listeners. But yeah, that concludes my public service announcement. If you haven't updated your systems yet, you'd better do it. And then at the same time, I want to punt uh, Corey's. I've picked it before on the show. Um, they on Friday when the CVE was released, they pushed out an update uh, for that CVE and several others related to all to GLibc, and it's just fantastic. The system updated itself and rebooted. I mean, I only found out about this today, and uh, all my Corey's clusters were self-healed and ready already. All I needed to do was just SSH in to confirm the version numbers. So. Absolutely fantastic. If you bring up new systems or you're looking for a, 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 like a more future-proof way to de- deploy your systems, I definitely recommend Corey's. But I'm not going to hamp on that too much. Yeah, I'm sure there are a few camps as well. I've, I know I've heard some people talking about Mesosphere and things like that as well. I, I'm, I don't know where that all fits together, but the CoreOS stuff that you've shown me looks very appealing. Hmm. The, it gets all confusing, this new post Amazon stack that <laughs> people are building up like Mesosphere is, is a, it's more like a, a scheduler, a resource scheduler. So you can run Mesosphere on top of core S or on your existing bare metal or in some other environments. And then it can help you place your units of execution in the network and be it Docker or non Docker. Um, I don't think it's got a specific uh, bias there. So, it's just a scheduling component and a very strong and very capable scheduling component to use. But it's definitely something to to demystify maybe in a future show. Yeah, I'd love to go in a bit more into just infrastructure at some point and what this, as you call it, the post-Amazon stack looks like nowadays. There's a fantastic website called thenewstack.io that covers a lot of this stuff. Uh, a lot of vendor stuff in between, but not as bad as something like InfoQ. A, a lot of great articles. They had one sometime last year. They basically called it the post-Amazon stack. And it's a fantastic read. It's a long read. I'll uh, put it in the show notes. Cool. I'd love to read that. Cool. Well, I think that covers through pretty much everything we wanted to talk about. Yes. I definitely think so. And a lot more. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Love these organic chats. Cool. I, yeah, I definitely think that's that's it for me. I don't know if you've got anything else that you want to add. 
nothing from my side. I think we've added and added and everything as we were going. Yes, and we've got a lot of links and notes already, so I'm fine with skipping picks this week. <laughs> yeah, I think picks. Well, this, this was kind of pick picks week. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's another way of putting it. <laughs> cool. So yeah, thanks everyone for tuning in. This was our February sec fault. Uh, we plan to have these every month. Just gives us an opportunity to cover some of the fringes that may or may not otherwise fill up episodes and relieves the the demands on getting speakers every week, which doesn't mean you should not keep like raising your hands or suggesting people for us via our Slack. Uh, oh, please, if you want to get into our Slack and you're not, uh, DMs are open on Twitter. We'll get you in that way. Otherwise, ask a friend. Uh, we've got an open invite system. Well, by referral. We don't run a Slack in site. Um, what else is there? Subscribe in iTunes, uh, follow us on Twitter, ZADFChat. We're on Facebook and Google Plus as well if that's the networks you like. And uh, yeah, thanks a lot for listening. Thanks, guys. That was awesome. Cheers. Later.